Hello and welcome to the Chasing Faith podcast. This is going to become a place for us to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us towards a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. I'm Brandon Batson. I'm the producer of this podcast and the Communications and Connections Director here at Christ Church in New York City. I'm here with your host, the Reverend Dr. Stephen Ballman, the Senior Minister here at Christ Church. Our guest on the podcast today is Reverend McGray DeVega. He is the senior pastor of Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida. He grew up in the Tampa Bay area and received his bachelor's degree from Eckerd College before going on to earn a Master of Divinity degree from United Theological Seminary of Dayton, Ohio. From 2007 to 2015, he served as the senior pastor of St. Paul United Methodist Church in Cherokee, Iowa. He has two daughters, Grace and Madeline. Welcome to the podcast. McGray de Vega. I am so pleased to be welcoming McGray de Vega to this conversation of Chasing Faith today. I have come to know McGray a bit over the last several years, and uh, along with that, coming to know him, I've also come to appreciate the depth of his theological framework, his pastoral heart his warmth and integrity, and his ability to communicate the essential truth of the Christian gospel. Not long ago, I guess it was back in March, McGray gave a personal statement in his midweek message following all of the violence directed towards Asian Americans. And uh, I invited Right. Actually, I asked McGray if it would be all right if I completely uh, plagiarized that, actually, and uh, use it as my own faith matters for that week. And he readily agreed to that. Our congregation had already been introduced to McGray because he had preached not long, not not uh, many weeks prior to that. And so I thought this would, uh, was a wonderful follow-up, and his self-reflection was, was lovely and helpful. So I thought we might just continue that conversation. But McGray, for the sake of all of those who have not yet had the benefit of hearing or reading your work, um, maybe you can just tell us your story. Where did McGray de Vega come from, and how did he wind up the human he is today. Well, first of all, thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to call you not just a colleague, but a friend. And uh, I'm just grateful to spend this time with you and your community. And thanks for the privilege of being invited to this program. Uh, my name is McGray DeVega. I'm the senior pastor at Hyde Park United Methodist Church in Tampa, Florida. Uh, I've called Florida home for most of my life. Um, I was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, my parents came over to the United States as immigrants from the Philippines in the early 1970s. And so I'm a first-generation native-born American um, and grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida, which uh, I lived in throughout all of schooling and then college. I would say that it was in St. Petersburg where I went to a a rather evangelical, I would say fundamentalist Christian school from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, the same school. 
um, affiliated with a rather conservative uh, Bible institute where I was introduced to Jesus. And the, the early seedlings of the faith were planted there in that education and reinforced by my family. Uh, my parents uh, were, are a Christian family. Um, and so I graduated from high school, uh, fully formed in um, sort of a conservative view of the Christian faith. Uh, and then I went to a liberal arts college in St. Petersburg. And the great unwinding of that tightly wound <laughs> fabric began to happen. I'll never forget my freshman year in college, where I was excited to take an introduction to religious studies class. And it was nothing like what I was expecting and nothing like what I learned in my Bible classes in high school, where we learned about uh, various philosophies and viewpoints on religion. We read Karl Marx and Friedrich Schleiermacher and <laughs> Sigmund Freud and William James. And, uh, and it was taught by a professor who was this deeply devout a uh, faithful Anglican priest. He's, he's still a friend of mine today, but oh, I hated him. I hated him <laughs> and what he was saying. You know, yes. was coupled by the fact that I was a biology major at the time because I thought I wanted to be a doctor since I was in fourth grade. And so here, here is this kid who grew up learning about, evol about creation, the seven days of creation, literally uh, had to memorize that in, in school, high school, taking a biology class, learning about Darwin, uh, reading biologists like Stephen Jay Gould and, and reading <laughs> all of these things. And uh, it, was, it was a convergence, almost a perfect storm of threats to my tightly wound evangelical fabric to where I call it now a wilderness experience in my freshman year in college. I began by, by the way, Stephen Jay Gould was a guest at Christ Church. Oh. Um, not not long before he died. Oh. Uh, he, wonderful man. He was actually deeply respectful of religion. Yeah. Well, I didn't <laughs> right? recognize that. I didn't recognize that at the time. Oh, of course not. <laughs> he was also a destroyer of religion. Yes. And, a, and a brilliant essayist. Yes, and, yes. Um, yeah. And so I remember long days walking around that campus um, in St. Petersburg, just questioning everything and feeling mm. very unsettled about things. Um, I, I would add that a couple years prior to going to college, I went. I began attending my first United Methodist Church. Uh, I'd grown up essentially Baptist, but my um, my faith journey really took an incredible turn when I was confirmed in the United Methodist Church in St. Petersburg. And, um, and how I did you wind up there? So that's another quick little fascinating story in order for me to get, well, first of all, my parents who at the time spoke very little English uh, were reluctant to go to a local church in St. Petersburg because nobody spoke Tagalog. And um, so I, I basically didn't go to church until 10th grade. Um, and, uh, but we started going to Pasadena Community Church in St. Petersburg because my dad remembered the reputation of a great preacher there named J. Wallace Hamilton, who was 
the pastor there for 40 years. He was the first one in the country to introduce drive-up ministry, where they set speakers <laughs> out outside the sanctuary, and people would just drive up, roll down their windows, and hear That was music. before Robert Schuler. Robert Schuler learned it from Jay Wallace oh, Hamilton. Interesting, vacationing interesting. in St. Petersburg, he met Jay ah, Wallace Hamilton ah, that's and decided to employ that technology at the Crystal Cathedral. So with that <laughs> reputation, uh, my dad started to take us <laughs> to Pasadena Community Church uh, in our station wagon with the windows rolled down um, all through later elementary and junior high, but I never stepped foot in the sanctuary. Um, predominantly white congregation, I was still uh, a little, my parents were reluctant, in, in, I guess, in that way. So anyway, fast forward to 10th grade, I'm in my Bible class in my conservative Christian school, my Bible teacher says, in order to get, get an A in this class at the end of the year, you have to interview your pastor. And I was crestfallen <laughs> because I didn't have one of those. And so it was uh, in order to get an A in the class, I had to introduce myself to the only pastor I was remotely connected to, which was the pastor of Pasadena Community Church, a man named Jack Stroman, um, who's still one of my deepest friends and mentors today. And uh, so, lo and behold, this this stranger of a kid um, calls him and he says, sure, I'd love to meet you. And it was one of those moments of serendipity that really um, has been a pillar in my life, to, to get to meet him, spend an hour with him, asking him questions about the faith, about his weekly routines, his call to ministry. And um, after that, I decided, you know, maybe this church isn't such a bad place. I know it's it's Methodist. I mean, it's not Baptist, but I'll give it a shot. And so I started going to youth group. And before I knew it, I was confirmed. And then um, that became my local church uh, for a couple years before I graduated from high school and before I had my wilderness experience in, in college. Would you say, McGray, that... Um I'm always curious about this as people tell their stories. How early did would you say you knew God? Uh, and I mean that any way in which you might interpret that question. Oh, what a fantastic question. So I, I like to think about two different people in whom I saw conflicting images of God at an early age. The first was the principal of that school, a large, broad-shouldered, ominous-looking, square-jawed man named Jack Sandhouse, who uh, ruled over us elementary kids with a very stern gaze and a wooden mm. panel, paddle above his desk. And uh, we saw him every Thursday morning for chapel assembly, and he would speak to us with this booming voice. And I would say that for the first several years of school, in retrospect, that became an image of God for me. Um, contrasting that with my second grade teacher named Ruth Farrell, who was the antithesis of Jack Sandhouse in every way, in personality, in appearance, in demeanor, and in theology. And one day in second grade, Ruth Farrell sat all of us kids down in a little circle on the carpet in the corner of her room, took out one of those flannel boards where she would... Uh, play out a story from the, I don't even remember what story she was playing out with flannel boards. But at the end, she said, um, if any of you would like to accept Jesus into your heart, I invite you to raise your hand. 
And I found myself raising my hand with about two or three other kids. She took us into another part of the room. Uh, she led us in a prayer. And then she looked at us and said, now I need you to go to see the principal, Mr. Sandhouse. <laughs> oh, like, boy. Yeah. <laughs> like all of a sudden, I've done the exact wrong thing I was supposed to. But I tell those stories because um, I think my earliest images of God came in the form of people with whom I associated a theology of God. And mm. um, so sometimes in my early development, I saw God as Jack Sandhouse. Um, kept me in line, kept me obedient, out of fear. And then there are times, and I would say this is where I am now, most of my life since has been a Ruth Farrell kind of theology, which is a warm, um, alluring a vision of God that uh, just warm and embracing. So, so, so we'll likely get get there eventually, as you tell your story. But I'm curious, as a as a child, you never you never second guessed the reality of God. God was a given in your life. That's correct. That's correct. Especially okay. with a deeply devout uh, Christian home, where my mother uh, is Roman Catholic, like most Filipinos. And my dad, a deeply devout Protestant, uh, the conversation about God uh, was always a given in, in my life growing up. Right. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, so you've brought us up to the point where you're a freshman right. in college and you're having your wilderness time. Is my that right? My wilderness experience was uh, incredibly unsettling. And I remember one Sunday going back to my local church and calling Dr. Stroman, my senior, who was still there as my senior pastor, and just pouring my heart out, just saying, I don't know what I believe anymore. Um, and I, I just don't know what to do with all these conflicting ideas. And I'll never forget his approach with me. It was not to push me towards any kind of certainty, but it was to assure me that he would walk this journey with me. Um, I'll never forget that approach. And in retrospect, I realized that that was just as formative an image of God for me as Jack Sandhouse and Ruth Farrell. Yeah. Because it would be several mm -hmm. months still that I would be walking in this wilderness journey until I came to a prayerful realization about the resurrection. Um, I, I, I came to this moment of decision that if the resurrection is real, then the claims of the Christian faith are true. And because no one, this is what I was thinking at the time, because no one has ever found the body of Jesus, then the resurrection is true and I can believe in the Christian faith. And that, that was a turning point to get me out of my wilderness experience in terms of doubt and disbelief. And I can say now, having gone through seminary, that I can add an amendment to that claim which is that the resurrection was not only historically true, it is true every day in the lives of people. And that even, I would even say now that it's not even as contingent on finding the bones of Jesus or not. I mean, it doesn't have to be that, <laughs> it doesn't have to be that historically empirically true because I now see after years of ministry, evidence of the resurrection in people's lives and in communities and in our culture resurrection happens because of the Spirit of God. 
It's not to say that there aren't doubts or disbelief or skepticism that creep in, because of course they do. Anne Lamott said that the opposite of faith is not uh, doubt, it's certainty. So I think there's an embrace there of uncertainty. Hmm. Um, and that, that was a turning point for me in college. Um, I was still, so, and that began to, to unwind the tightly wound fabric of fundamentalism that continued to an, a stratospheric level when I went to seminary. <laughs> because to make a long yeah. story short, I graduated from college still thinking I was going to be a doctor. And then 11 rejection letters to medical school later, <laughs> I thought maybe God was trying to give me a message that maybe my fourth grade dream of being a physician was, was more me than God. And so um, I started the process of candidacy a year after college, after, after sitting on St. Petersburg Beach one night, really wrestling over what to do with my life. And I tell the story that it, it was as clear an audible voice of God that I've ever heard, hearing the words uh, as the waves were rolling in on the beach, sunset on Pasigro Beach, where God was saying, I want you to be a minister. And uh, I remember driving to my parents' home that night, like 1130 at night, and breaking the news to my parents, thinking it would just deeply disappoint them. But uh, they were just so pleased to hear that, and they've been my biggest cheerleader since. And 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 um, and I would say, just to continue this theological journey, if I might, yeah, I, I I always think this to be an interesting thing. When I started the candidacy process as a certified candidate, the district committee on ministry that first met me for the first time uh, after they heard my story and the things I had to say, they said, McGray, um, we would really suggest that when you go to seminary, that you uh, read some theologies that might open your mind a little bit. <laughs> uh, we invite you to read feminist theology and liberation theology and process theology. And, and I said, okay, I, I took that with a grain of salt, but I still did. And I went to a seminary, United Theological Seminary, uh, mm -hmm. which at the time, at the time was a, a very um, open kind of, right. open thinking kind of seminary. Right. And to make a long story short, when I graduated from seminary and went back for provisional candidate for provisional candidacy, I went before the board of ordained ministry, and they said, after I graduated from seminary, mm -hmm. um, you might want to read more orthodox theology. So. I feel like I've covered the, the, the spectrum, all of this to say, I, I, I look back at my theological journey, realizing the, that there have been benefits at every stop along the way, that I can extract the good from my early days of my fundamentalist background, all the way through seminary, because I think to be an effective minister today, we have to be theologically multilingual which means to be able to meet people wherever they are, whatever spectrum mm. we want to use to talk theologically, knowing that everyone's on a journey, whether they realize they're on a journey or not. Right. Right. We have to be able to meet them and walk, and then Jack Stroman, walk alongside them rather than try to coerce them or push them to some kind of certainty that we might have that we can't expect other people to have. Yeah, I have, I have, I arrived at the, idea that coercion was anti-faithful 
mm-hmm. uh, at a rather relatively early age, and working with that or letting that uh, inform our work as pastors um, is a powerful, powerful thing, and um, and it's hard. Mm-hmm. That is to say, in some way, in some ways, it's easier. That is to say, mm-hmm. or I shouldn't say e- these are the wrong words to be using. In some ways, it's just loving people right where they are, That's and exactly. I mean easy in that way. Right. Um, it's also freeing, mm-hmm. as though the onus isn't on me achieving something other mm-hmm. than loving the person. Right. And part of the work of pastoral ministry is being aware and sensitive to those privileged moments when a person is ready to think about a higher level of consciousness, of, of thinking right. about God in a different way. And oftentimes those are moments of pain, like it was for me often, as a freshman. Yes, often. You can either be loved into a higher level of consciousness, or you can go through pain into a higher lo- level of consciousness. I mean, being loved through it is much more fun, but being pained <laughs> into it is much more common. And yes. uh, those, some of my most privileged moments of pastoral ministry are to walk alongside someone who just can't, who just can't think about how to ask their questions because it's so hard. McGray, was any part of this process up to the point that you've now discussed um, hurtful, uh, painful in a in a damaging way, or in a way that um, has required sort of uh, ongoing work. Yes, I think that as I have come to look at the benefits of each stop along my theological journey, I've also seen the shadow sides, particularly of fundamentalism, and uh, to have to reevaluate a lot of the assumptions I had about the about Christian theology from a fundamentalist perspective. And I realize now the kind of harm that it has inflicted on people. I would say one of the most eye-opening things for me in seminary was getting to know a woman who um, who is part of the LGBTQ community, who was in seminary pursuing ordination and shared with me um, and some friends her pain and struggle she said, how could God create me and call me in ways that are contradictory? I'll never forget the way she framed that. I mean, it, it, there should not be a contradiction in the way God created her and now to what God is calling her. And I realized that there was a time in my life, not too much uh, in the past from that moment, where I I would have been on the other side. And... Um, and disavowed her calling. And of course, now as the denomination continues to wrestle through this, I still wrestle with the shadow side of that that kind of Christian conviction, still trying to find the benefit of, of that kind of theology because I want to I, I want to be theologically multilingual, but I recognize there there can be great harm, and we have to always watch that. When you think about um, <clears throat> I'm I'm curious how you would describe the process from before to after. Let's just take that topic, the LGBTQ sure. topic. What do you, th- can you, do you have any language or words or descriptors for the process between uh, the, pr- the former to the latter? 
Mm. Now, I think that because one of the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith is the incarnation, um, some of the most important moments along a person's faith journey are incarnational in the way we develop real-life flesh-and-blood relationships with people and come to the realization that everyone has a story and everyone should feel the right to share that story without having their story demeaned or dehumanized. Um, and I think for me, that was very true, not only of my friend in seminary, but of every person uh, on any of other range of topics who introduced a new way of thinking to me, a new way of looking at God uh, through their own personal experience that I had no right to disavow because it's their story. And I also had to come to terms with how to share my own story and my own struggles in order to be incarnational with other people. So I would say, to answer your question, the before and after is linked by moments of incarnation when we are present to each other and as God is present to us. I, I is, think that's how the message moves. That is a really fine, um, that's as fine a description of that process as I've heard. And I mm -hmm. am deeply appreciative of the incarnational perspective because I would, I First of all, I completely concur, but I mm -hmm. but I do think that's where the authentic holy engagement occurs. Mm -hmm. It's right there. Mm -hmm. You know, I I have said this in prior podcasts a time or two, but my I have a son who is gay, mm -hmm. and there came a time when um, he ended up going to seminary. Mm -hmm. um, I Melissa and I never really had an issue with his being gay. And of course he didn't really come out until his mid twenties, even though we invited that conversation, he wasn't really wanting to have that conversation, which was fine. It's obviously his life. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, but ev eventually it did, it did occur to him that he ought to be explicit and transparent with himself, let alone with everyone else. But shortly thereafter, while he was at seminary, he was at Union in New York. And while the Methodists were in the news, he very he was over at our apartment one night and very quietly said to me, he said, you know, Dad, it is very painful uh -huh. to know that your church uh -huh. does not want you. I said, I know. We didn't discuss it more at that point. He has ultimately wound up an Episcopalian, and he mm -hmm. is now uh, the the, the uh, co senior warden at his church in mm. downtown Bless Manhattan. Last him, and and has had a and has had history as a chaplain. But I'll never forget that very brief, short conversation we had that captures so much in so few words. Yeah. Uh, and it strikes at the heart of what incarnational theology is meant to be addressing, right? Absolutely. And, you know, as, as I was saying earlier about being going through pain to go through a higher level of consciousness is not just true of individuals. I think we can look at it corporately in the hope, in the resurrection hope that a denomination like ours is having to go through this pain in order eventually to get to a higher level of understanding 
not just human sexuality, yes. but the love of God. And we just need um, we just need to acknowledge the Spirit of God alongside us, hopefully, to get us to that place. Yes, and maybe this is a good place for us to segue uh, into the conversation you had or and wrote about in your message to your congregation about your experience as an Asian American growing up in a largely white environment. And we don't need to stay there very long because I'm wanting to press this conversation of incarnational theology further as well and how it impacts our conversations about race as well, yes. which, which you eloquently introduce in this piece as well. But perhaps you could, before you actually answer uh, or, or speak too directly your experience as an Asian American um, and your, process, your maturing process, I'm curious, how would you describe your current congregation and the congregations you've served in terms of the demographics? Sure, sure. So I, uh, I have served uh, mostly white congregations, uh, mostly suburban or urban congregations, uh, with the exception of a beautiful, small, rural church in the middle of Iowa, uh, for seven years, <laughs> which um, was uh, literally 99.4, I believe, percent Anglo. And so uh, I joked with my congregation um, when I left the Hyde Park congregation to go up to Iowa in my last in my last sermon before moving up to Iowa, I told my former congregation if they ever wanted to mail me anything, they could just address it to the Filipino charity, Iowa. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, within a week of my arrival, sitting on my desk in my office was a package from a former church member addressed to that very address. The post and office it, had found a way to get it to me. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's something... Uh, <laughs> There's something ugly and beautiful all at the same time, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so that's that's essentially the makeup of most of the congregations I've served, uh, w- with some diversity, but mostly white, including the one I have now. So so maybe you could just uh, give some highlights from, uh, from the piece that you wrote or anything sure. else that occurs to you that would help our listeners to get into this conversation yeah. with you? Well, the central tension on which the entire piece pivots is the internal tension between being and belonging. I tried yes. to frame it to make it a universal statement that all yes. of us um, struggle with how to be authentically who we are and how to feel authentically connected to people beyond ourselves. And, um, for me, that was most profoundly experienced in the questions about my race, about my ethnicity. But the response to that piece uh, f- from so many people, not just in the congregation, were stories where people were wrestling with that very tension for other reasons. Yes. And I think highlighting that inner tension as a universal one helps us understand our common story. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that could be a helpful beginning point in talking about race and other things. Right. Um, you know, folks can, I suppose, read the, the piece if they want to. 
uh, here who are listening to this podcast, but the highlights were that the thing that most symbolized that internal tension for me as a kid growing up was my hair. I was the, the target of bullying in first and second grade. My, my conservative school was mostly white. I stood out for many reasons. And uh, as a result of that bullying, I just I kept looking in the mirror in the morning realizing I wish I had uh, white people hair. Um, not this kind of straight down uh, haircut that when my dad cut my hair, it looked like you put a bowl on my head and trimmed around it. I wanted the kind of hair that I saw on TV and the kind of hair that I saw in my friends that had this kind of luscious looking swoop, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and so uh, eventually the bullying stopped uh, after first, second, third grade. And it was about fifth or sixth grade where I decided to, to spend every morning hairspraying, applying a thick lacquer of hairspray in order to get my hair to look like a white person's hair, mm. hairstyle. And I continued that into my 30s, like every day. Um, and in retrospect, I realized that that was, for me, an expression of that inner tension between being and belonging. Mm. And it was not until I received um, a grant uh, to go on sabbatical about eight years ago to go to the Philippines. I, I'd only ever spent a few months in the Philippines when I was, I think, six years old. But to go back to the Philippines, to, to meet family I'd never met before, go back to my parents' home towns, um, to see a country full of people who had hair like me. Um, <laughs> and it was in that moment that before I went on that trip, at the end of a sermon in Cherokee, Iowa, when I was telling them what I was going to be doing for the next three months, at the end of that sermon, and having told that story about bullying and hairspray, we had one of the local hairstylists come up onto the chancel and shave my head um, with a number two clipper. And uh, I have kept that hairstyle ever since, as you can see on video. Folks on the podcast can't see, but it's very short now. I've very never... smart looking, too. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's much more economical. Yeah. Um, hairspray is expensive and not good yeah. for the environment. And so I've never touched a pan since. And so now I have a different way of negotiating that balance between being and belonging, as symbolized by my hair. Um, and folks, did, we, yeah. So, yeah. Do you think you went through a period of negating yeah. your heritage? Is that was the adopting the hairstyle a negation? Yes, I would say that the balance for many, many years swung more toward belonging than it did toward being. Yes. Um, I realized that the bullying stopped when I downplayed my ethnicity and. Uh, became more known for the things that Asians were supposed to be known for, like academic brilliance and loyalty and gentleness and subservience <laughs> and humility and disappearing. And and when I did that, when I fit into the narrative, of course, I didn't know this at the time. I see it right, now right. with this whole model minority myth. But when I played into that, then I became more accepted, more popular in school, hmm. uh, and it advanced me professionally. Um, in the churches that I served, there have been a number of times whenever I've introduced myself to a new congregation and I stand before them on the first Sunday when I announce who I am and welcome them, 
people have always said to me or or others, you know, McGray doesn't speak the way you expect him to speak. And I always play with them and say, what do you mean? Complete sentences, you know, subjects and verbs. What they mean is my yeah. accent. Yes, of course, of course. And um, and so I, I I recognize what they're really saying, but there's also a part of me that recognizes how much I've had to subvert the being part in order to mm. do the belonging part. And I would say that that finding that balance will be a, an ongoing project for me as it is for all of us. Do you think you ever uh, push the balance in the other direction? Yeah, I, I would say that um, a writing a piece like this certainly was helpful to highlight my ethnicity and to claim a pride in it. Mm. That um, is not was that the Was that the first time you've done something like that? At this church, yes. I've right. talked, I, I had spoken a few times about bullying, but never identified the reason for it because of my race. Certainly never talked to this congregation where I am now about my hairstyle and what it represented. But there was and, something about the rising violence against Asian Americans in this country over the past year. Mm. And the, the beautiful words of concern that people in the church and others were expressing to me um, especially in the wake of the Atlanta shooting, yes. that I felt a nudge to to say something, um, but I, I didn't want it to. I didn't want the piece to add to the divisiveness of our country, or of the conversation, but to try to touch on some universal themes that all of us can identify with, so that they can see how my own racial struggle is a, a universal one for all of us. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think you thread the needle really expertly on that in that in that piece. Um, but I'm also aware that when we do that, when we thread the needle, we are, and I don't mean this critically at all, we are minimizing our emotional mm. situation, our emotional place in the matter. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. In fact, I shared an early draft of the message with some confidants, and they identified that very thing. Yeah. They said, you know, it's, it's, it's helpful in many ways. They appreciated the theological constructs I was making. But they said, McGray, we, we, we'd like to know how you're feeling right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes, yes, yes. And I would say it's just more, it, it was, a, it was a, a personality awareness in that moment that I do tend mm. to go head first into the yeah. unknown than heart first. And, um, and so that was helpful for me to add some color to the yeah. piece that talks about um, my, my, my anger, my sense of grief. I added those words because they're real, first of all, yes. but because my friends were right. Um, w there needs to be entry points of the heart in any of these discussions in a way that mm -hmm. we don't have to fear. Have you experienced any pushback within your largely white congregations? I've not. It's been a beautiful thing for people to to respond well to it, and and I would say that there are some people who have been have been very well meaning in their affirmation at the point where they're actually uh, 
underscoring some of the uh, the tensions within the piece, such as people who've said, oh, I've never thought of you as an ethnic yes. person. Yes. You know? <laughs> don't, don't worry, McGray. I've never thought yes. of you as a minority. Yes, exactly. And You're one of us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Such well-meaning people. Yes. Uh, and I understand that, but they also underscore the tension. Apparently- um, of apparently course. this project of being and belonging is, is something we all have to work on together. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you do, we've, we've touched on this earlier on this inca- incarnational uh, perspective on how to advance the conversation, but perhaps we can say a bit more about that now as we're addressing race specifically in this current moment in our, mm-hmm. in our culture and in our political moment. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, what's the dance here between expressing understanding of all people and yet maintaining a prophetic voice that is clear, clear-throated? Oh, uh, and I appreciate I, you using the word dance because as yeah. you know in the piece I mentioned the Trinity. <laughs> yes. And the the Trinity for for early Christian thinkers was considered as a dance. Um, yes. It is one dance with with three energies, and um, I find that to be a helpful understanding. That if God is both individual and communal, both yes, um, within God's self, then if we are made in the image of God, as hard as the Trinity is to understand rationally we can find a balance, a Trinitarian balance within ourselves between the need to be and the need to belong. And I I think that when you ask the question about how to understand but also be prophetic, I think it begins with underscoring the image of God within each person. Um, I think that's an important starting point. Mm -hmm. Every person has the capacity and the liberty and the permission to be and belong if we are made in the image of God. And to not allow that of another person is to um, diminish their their capacity to to be a child of God. Uh, I shared once. I'm going to butcher the quote now. I should have reread it. Desmond Tutu said that racism is the ultimate blasphemy because it tells a child of God that they are not a child of God. Um, and I think that's an important starting point that we can't emphasize enough. Mm. Yeah. How do you see our larger church moving into the future? (laughs) I mean, mainly because I realize that's a huge question and almost unanswerable. But but just to kind of put some touch points on it, because all of these matters that we're discussing are entirely relevant to how the church is perceiving its future. Yeah. I, I have shared this with my congregation in the past, that, um, and I, I remember reading this in Miroslav Volf's most recent book, Flourishing. Yes. And his central premise is one that I have held on to uh, in the two years since I read it, which is this, that some of the biggest problems we face in the world are because of religion at its worst. And some of the greatest hope that we can claim can be religion at its best. 
and I'd like to lean into the light <laughs> the best I can. Yes, indeed. Mm. Um, so, how do we? What, what do you? What do you see as the components of the journey forward on that? You know, the it's the reality of um, believing a thing hmm. as opposed to now doing a thing. Right on some level, <laughs> so, and I and I have nothing in mind particularly here. Although this has been on my mind, I've been grappling with this as a as a personal and professional matter. How do we how do we incarnate now um, within the life of the church the the best and the holiest outcome that we can? And how can we do that in a way that shows up in the actual decisions around structures? Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes those processes seem to be diametrically opposed to the highest calling that is ours to bear. Yeah. I think you frame it really well that the form of organized religion, the structures of the church, um, ought to be uh, ought to be flexible enough to change and adapt, but often we cling to those forms more closely than we do to the spirit of the work that we're supposed to do. And there's great fear in changing those forms because we know what we know, uh, but we don't know uh, what what the possibilities are. And uh, thinking specifically about our denomination. I think that this painful journey that we're on is going to result in some changes to our forms. I certainly hope so. Yes. And I think this pandemic is showing us <clears throat> in local churches the possibilities of changing some of our forms and challenging yes. some of our assumptions about what the church should be. And it just goes back to the premise. Sometimes we got to go through pain to get to a higher level of understanding and that often means about the structures um, that we cling to. Hmm. And, um, and I'll go back even further to what I first said. Uh, if the resurrection is real, <laughs> we can believe the resurrection is happening and can happen, even in the church. Yeah, I, I do think that this conversation is vitally important because so many people have have expressed so much hurt from the church right. in recent decades. And so many people have stayed away because of that hurt. And just the most recent Gallup uh, results mm -hmm. tell us that increasing numbers of people are no longer, quote, members, unquote, of religious organizations, and yet still profess to be, say, Christian for our sakes. So they're, they will claim the faith, as it were, apart from a structure, because the structures have failed them somehow. Right. right. They haven't found them life-giving. They've found them life-sucking somehow, That's I think. Right. That's right. That's right. And I, I think that they're, they are telling the church something, uh, that the assumptions that we have long clung to about what it means to be the church and the methodologies we've used because those methodologies have worked in the past don't necessarily work now, and they don't have to work now because the Spirit may be calling us to a different way of understanding 
who God is within the realm of um, historical Christianity. I don't think anybody, I'm certainly not thinking about heresy in anything, um, but there is a way to express historical Christian belief with new life and new possibility that that is not beholden to assumptions that may no longer be true in terms of how we express uh, the Christian faith. Yes, as a matter of fact, I think it's imperative that we find the way to stay connected to the historic tradition. Absolutely. We were I was having a conversation with Brandon and some others just yesterday on my deep commitment at Christ Church to stay connected to the best that the mm-hmm. tradition has to offer stretching back centuries mm-hmm. and to be self-conscious about it. That is to be alert and aware and to invite the congregation in on that conversation, which lies at the heart of what I'm going to call liturgical Christianity, because it gives us this opportunity to claim a tradition rather than simply the opinions of the current minister who's occupying the pulpit solely. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's something very powerful about that. We have to always remember that the story is bigger than us. It was around much much longer before we appeared on the scene. And will God willing be be around much longer after we're gone? Yes, and we can we can root ourselves in that story. Yes, exactly. Hmm. Um, speaking of Brandon, he has been astonishingly quiet during this conversation. Oh. You know, I, I was literally <laughs> just thinking the same thing, but he's I, normally I a lot more listening. chatty, McGray. <laughs> uh, well, I think another part of it is that typically. Uh, especially lately, the guests have been people that I either knew or had some connection to, but <laughs> I, I know so little about McGray. I was, I'm just listening, taking it, taking it all in. Oh, okay. It has nothing to do with like solitaire on your phone off screen. Or, no, or, no, or, no. Or I'm no good at it anyway. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to meet you, Ray. Yes, it's a pleasure to meet you too. But I, th- I think that's a, a question that I do have and something that we've been, we actually were talking about a little bit before we got started was, you know, this has been one of the toughest years for churches in general, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the uh, COVID made us think about what we've been doing in our structures and all kinds of things that we've already talked about in this conversation. But what have you and your staff learned during this time and what has been the thing that has pushed you outside of your comfort zone the most? (laughs) Oh, what a profound question. I think, wow, I think the biggest learning for us is that that ministry happens in exciting ways, even in moments of sheer panic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The learning curve has been huge for our church, perhaps for most churches about how to continue to do ministry, not just worship, but discipleship and mission and service mm-hmm. um, in, in ways that uh, w- when we're not physically together. And what's astonishing is the Spirit works in ways that we weren't expecting. Um, I'm sure it's the case for you all, but in the area of worship, we have people who are, uh, who are discovering us from across the country um, who are being ministered to by by our ministries because we've been online in a more robust way. I received an email about a month ago 
that uh, really one of the most beautiful <laughs> messages I've received from a guy who said that for all of his life, he has been what he called a tough atheist. 2019, he said, was a particularly hard year for him. And then the pandemic hit in 2020. Mm. And, um, and then he discovered Hyde Park United Methodist online and started to follow us and started to watch us. And then toward the end of his message, he said, I now consider myself a Christian. Um, he said, the way that we as a church are articulating a balance between religion and science and an embrace of inclusivity for all God's people and a fearlessness to speak out against injustice and inequality. He said that's resonated with him to where he is now um, uh, getting, uh, becoming a part of his own local faith community where he is in the country, and he's going to uh, receive communion for the first time. Um, you just, I just never heard stories like that before the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's right. interesting. Um, it, this is kind of a, a tangent to our incarnational conversation, mm -hmm. which has to do with when we're talking about virtual church versus proximate church, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what's the relationship to incarnational religion? We are a mm -hmm. embodied. We are an embodied religion, and you can't feed someone virtually. You can't touch them virtually. You can only do that physically. And while we don't have time to unpack this, this would be a lengthy conversation, maybe sure. on another occasion. Yeah, yeah. But it's worth thinking about. I think about uh, how do we put this package together in a way that honors our incarnational religious point of view. Right. Um, and, and how to do it in both ways. I mean, we, we, right. we always knew at the start of the pandemic, there would be a time when we would be physically present again. Right. Mm. Um, the, the reality also is, and we talked about the, the trends in the culture, uh, is that folks are decreasing their level of commitment to coming together, especially Correct. on Sunday mornings. Correct. And so Correct. Uh, the, the value of virtual... Um, is that we can stay connected, if not physically, at least spiritually, through this whole virtual medium. Um, and, and so I think that, well, we have experienced a deeper level of connection virtually that won't go away when people start connecting together again physically. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that it can be a both and for us as a church. Right. That that's <clears throat> what we're hopeful for as well, and we're seeking the path forward that's on right. that. That's right. McGray, it's been a great pleasure to have this conversation. So pleased that you were willing to put up with us in this oh, way. Oh, gosh. <laughs> there was, this, was, this was wonderful. It was great mm. to be having this conversation with you guys. And I look forward to an ongoing uh, partnership and friendship as, the, as these months unfold going forward. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure to be with you both. And blessings to your congregation and your community. And to yours, McGray. Thank you. Thank you. Be well. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.